Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from Genesis chapter 11, and we'll study about the people building the Tower of Babel, and how they denied God and unified to defy God, and we'll learn about the purpose of their tower. Now, this message is available for free listening and free download at friendshipwithgod.org and also on iTunes.com. Just search for the Friendship with God podcast. Now, it's Tuesday, and we're already one day into the Summer Blitz. It's a campaign that goes to August 4th to reach lost Jewish people. We're sending out 110 missionaries from Israel Restoration Ministries, and Tom Cantor is the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries and our Bible teacher here on Friendship with God, and he's a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ as a Jewish person who got saved and received as Jewish Messiah. He wants others to be saved and reached, so he's sending out on DVD his life story and conversion testimony, as well as a combination book that incorporates three of his writings— his personal testimony, and his Frequently Asked Questions book with 34 of the top Frequently Asked Questions by Jewish people, and Prophecy and Fulfillment book with 194 Prophecy and Fulfillments of the Lord Jesus Christ as his Jewish Messiah. Now, you can have these same materials and support Jewish evangelism with a donation of $40 or more, and we'll send you a copy of these materials. You can help reach the Jew first with the gospel. Call us now at 800 247 3051 800 247 or go to friendshipwithgod.org to support this Bible teaching radio program or israelrestoration.org. Now here's our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, on Friendship with God. They were commanded to scatter. They're going to stay together. So then if some wanted to obey God, well, that was their option. That's what they wanted to do. They wanted to make God optional so that if you wanted to be religious and you wanted to To obey God, that was your situation. That was an option for you, but not obligatory for everyone. So simply optional. That was the brave new world, God optional. So some creative person in the group there, he comes up with this great invention to solve the problem. So with a passion, the, the word spreads like a disease you know, that they had this wild enthusiasm. And the invention wasn't announced, and they said, let's go make brick. And so, so the plane, as I said, didn't have stone, but obviously had clay, some type of clay soil. And uh, so they formed these clays into these square blocks. And they had their science and their scientists who said, look, it's a matter of time. We'll solve every problem, including this one. Science was going to overcome all their obstacles. Isn't that the way it is today? That's the way it is today. Science, it's, it's, today, science says there is no God. We don't need God. We need science. All our scientists have, have proved that, that we can overcome all the problems without God. You know? It reminds me, last week we had a big meeting with Philips Company in Tecate, Mexico, to install their most advanced, their top-of-the-line MRI, MRI and PET CT scanner, the CT scan in 10 seconds, you know? And the MRI, very fast, very high resolution, and the uh, you know, whole body in 15 minutes, so forth. But again, it was for cancer detection, see? So at the meeting, it was a big meeting, all together, and the head of Phillips for North America, he says, how do you reconcile for your cancer patients your scientific work and your spiritual work? He asked the question, you know. So I told him, well, that's easy. We tell the patients that we have two problems, and one of the problems we can definitely solve, and the other one we're not sure we can solve. 
So I <laughs> said, as far as getting to heaven, that problem, we can definitely solve that problem because God solved that problem already. But as far as your cancer goes, well, we're not sure. We'll try. Anyway, so for these people in Shinar, there's no question in their mind. Just give them time. The scientists are going to solve it. And the scientists found that if they took these clay blocks and they left them in the sun, that they became hard like adobe bricks. And the scientists said, okay, well, we need uh, tensile strength. So they put pressure on the blocks and they crumble. So that's not a good material for making a big tower. You can't make a tower out of blocks that crumble. So what do you do? So one of the scientists gets the idea of trying an experiment I mean, what would happen if you took those sun-hardened blocks and you burned them thoroughly? You made a kiln, then you made that kiln, and you put the blocks in there, and you made that kiln as hot as it possibly you could. What would happen? And so they did that, and something happened to the bricks. They didn't know, but the clay soil also contained a lot of silica. There's a desert. And, the, and so what happened is that when they made it real hot, then this silica melted and fused together, and it's something they'd never seen before. And so now their finished product is a through-and-through through glazed ceramic brick. A little delicate, you know, if, you, if they dropped it, shatter like glass. But for foundation stones, for a tower, that surpasses our conventional concrete blocks that we use today. Because what they had there, they had the tensile strength in this ceramic all the way through brick there, like they were holding a solid chunk of diamond. It was just very, very, very strong. Same thing the space shuttles use, uh, you know, on the bottom when they protect them from the heat as they re-enter the atmosphere. So here they discovered this great discovery, great celebration, not just for the bricks, but of the achievement of man. You can't believe how elated the whole community is. They've overcome a great obstacle. Eh? Nothing was going to stand in their way. Well, the scientists had a second problem, though, because when they stacked the ceramic blocks on top of each other, they noticed that it didn't take but a little bit of movement, as in the earth moving, and they cracked and broke. So that was another problem. Well, that doesn't matter. Scientists, they came up with the next solution, which was the flexible mortar that went between, see? And that's what they talk about here when they talk about the slime have they for mortar. So one scientist found this slime in the valley, and, and that was perfect. So, again, they said one to another. See, our scientists have, have prevailed. We've done it. We had an obstacle. Given time, we discovered a solution. We did it all without God. It was a great day for them because in overcoming the problem of no stones to build the tower, they were saying we're just beginning on our road of overcoming all the obstacles. We're building a new society. We're going to force God into a little box called religion. And those who want to, they can go to their houses of worship. And you can hear this account. You can hear this voice today. Is it saying, you know, our scientists have prevailed. They did it without praying to God. By science, we've succeeded in every problem. It just takes time. We conquered space. Look at polio. We had that problem. We, we did it. Next cancer. We're forming this brave new world without God. Scientists have proven that God didn't create the world. Scientists have proven everything came from into being on its own over billions of years. So the scientists are working. That's what they're doing. I mean... John Lennon's song was, you know, they could have written that song, you know, back then. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. No uh, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for just today. That's what they were doing. Now, so a new invention. They got the ceramic bricks. They got the mortar. Great encouragement. A dream 
is beginning to become a reality. And they could see it now. A big, beautiful, prosperous, satisfying city without God. And right in the middle of their city without God, they dreamed of this big, huge, tall tower, a monument to man's achievements. The tower was very important for them. First, the goal of the construction. It says there, you notice, whose top may reach unto heaven. That tower had to reach right into heaven. As that tower reached into heaven, it would be symbolic of man having no limitations. If God's in heaven, then we'll go there. God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly, sharats, the moving creature that hath life and fowl, and we fly above the earth upon the open firmament. God created great whales and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly, sharats, after their kind, after the wing fowl, and so forth. So, again, they said one to another, see, our scientists have, have prevailed. We've done it. We had an obstacle, given time. We discovered a solution. We did it all without God. It was a great day for them because in overcoming the problem of no stones to build the tower, they were saying, we're just beginning on our road of overcoming all the obstacles. We're building a new society. We're going to force God into a little box called religion. It's just like Satan said in Isaiah 14, 13, when he said, for thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit and so forth. So now notice in verse 4 that they had a twofold purpose for this tower. First, let us make a name. They, they had a name. They were the people of God. They were a man, God's creation. They didn't like that name. So they wanted names that didn't refer to God. Now, to say that, to make a name, has a very specific meaning in Scripture. To make a name. Here's where a couple of verses. In Isaiah 63, 12, it says that God led them by the hand, right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the waters before them to make himself an everlasting name. See, God makes a name. Jeremiah 32, 20 says, which has set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, even unto this day and in Israel among other men, and said, and has made thee a name as it is this day. See, so to make a name means to establish glory because of something that's done. So to make a name, that's reserved for God only. And, then, and he's the all-glorious one. He's the one that does it all. So in trying to make a name, they're trying to establish glory for themselves from what they did. So that's why these bricks and so forth are very important. By making a name, they, they could talk about what they did. We'll return with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God in just a moment. We'd like to encourage you to be a part of Jewish evangelism and reaching lost Jewish people around this nation with the summer blitz that Tom Cantor, the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries, is supporting with 110 missionaries going out to 14 Jewish cities in the U.S. and Canada. Now, that started this week, and we'd like you to support us financially to help get the gospel out to the Jewish people. To encourage you, we are offering Tom Cantor's life story on DVD, as well as a combination book of his personal testimony, frequently asked questions that are asked by Jewish people, and 194 prophecy and fulfillments of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this information in one book will give you both of these resources and materials for a donation of $40 or more, which will support this Bible teaching radio program and the gospel going to Jewish people. Call us now at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051.
And so that's very interesting. They want to talk about themselves. That's making a name. Talk about themselves. By contrast, we don't talk about ourselves. We talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't talk about what man has done. We talk about what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. That's described to us in the last verse of Psalm 22, where it talks about us as the seed. Psalm 22, 30 through 31. It talks about us as the seed that will serve him. It talks about us as being counted as the generation of the Lord, as he wasn't married, didn't have children, but we are his children. And it says that we will come and declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that he hath done this, that he hath done all this. Those are the words from the cross. When he said it's finished, he said, Ki, uh, asa, uh, done. He didn't say telestai. He didn't speak. He wasn't speaking Greek. He said, he said it's uh, done. Asa. And that's the two last words of that verse there in Psalm twenty-two, thirty-one. 31. Ki asa, that he did this. So we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did. Now, as we said, notice the second purpose of the tower in verse 4. He said, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the earth. They knew that God had commanded them to show out, go out and scatter across the face of the earth. So this tower was like a gathering point to keep them all together. It was a sign of their fame. It was a monument to their achievements. It was a security for them. It was a rallying point for their independence from God. All those who are independent from God meet here. They felt the glory of this tower. They felt they were, and it was, it was a great thing. And, um, well, Frank, you're you know, the Eiffel Tower, you know. That's a great thing. <laughs> if you don't think the Eiffel Tower is a great thing, put yourself in the boots. Don't put yourself in the boots of the Nazis. During World War II, he had a great idea. Here's all this metal we need for railroads and this, this dumb thing going up the sky. Why don't we just take that down? They would have had the whole country. They quickly got rid of that idea because it's a tremendous symbol for the French people, for their achievement, you know, the Eiffel Tower. Okay. Now, what was driving these people in Genesis 11? First of all, what was driving them was what is described in Ephesians 4.18 as a darkened understanding, having the understanding darkened. They had a darkened understanding, Ephesians 4.18. They had a darkened understanding. Instead of trusting in God, that's an enlightened understanding, they were leaning to their own understanding, which is darkened. And that's what we're warned not to do in Proverbs 3.5. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto their own understanding. They were leaning to their own understanding, their darkened understanding. And so what they were doing, though, seemed they were very sincere. You cannot criticize them for not being sincere. They were very sincere, and they were very enthusiastic. But sincerity and enthusiastic with a darkened understanding is a bad mix. So that's why it warns in Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. So Babel became the name of pride, later Babylon. It shows this unity of man's rebellion against God. And so then it says in verse 5 that the Lord came down to see. It says the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men have builded. So here we see God's examining what they did. And he sees not only what they were doing, but he sees what they were thinking. And so that's important because man thinks, you know, if I close my eyes, God can't see me. You know, <laughs> he can hide from God. But God says in Jeremiah 23, 23, 24, he says, Am I a God 
at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Did not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? So he's saying, you know, you have to find a different place other than heaven and earth if you want to hide from God. All right, so then he, he does the examination, and then notice in verse 6, he comes to the conclusion. He says, again, he uses the same word that was used in the beginning. Verse 1, he said, Behold, the people is echad. They're one. And they all have one language, one lip, one purpose, one intention. They're all on board. And they are beginning to do, beginning to do, and nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. So what God saw is that they were heading right down the road and in danger of passing the point of no return, of calling down the judgment of God on themselves. So God says that nothing shall be restrained. In other words, there's no self-restraint. In other words, of course, he could restrain them. But he was saying there's no restraint within them for what they want to do. So he says, so he, he stops them. He stops them. Why? To give them a space to come to themselves, as it says about the prodigal son. To give them a space to repent, as it says about the woman in Revelation. Because so he says, this they are beginning to do. It's just the beginning. And so God saw where they were heading, and he stopped them at the beginning, at the very beginning. That's a great mercy of God. That's a great mercy of God. Remember when, when uh, Abimelech had taken uh, Sarah, Abraham's wife, into his harem, and he was beginning, and, and God says, I, even I, have withheld thee from sinning against me. And he never touched her. So that was God's restraining by the mercy of God. And he acknowledged that. Abimelech acknowledged that also and said to Sarah, Sarah, Abraham is a covering for your eyes. You only got eyes for him. That's what he was saying. All right, so, but we see this pattern in history. You know, the Nazis are killing Jewish people and God stops the Nazis through confusion on D-Day. A cloud cover, a storm, which was very frustrating for the people trying to invade. But it made Hitler convinced that Normandy was only a decoy and that for sure the invasion was going to happen in Calais to the north. And, and so therefore he moves his panzer divisions up there. So God restrained through confusion. And what happened? The state of Israel was born. So God saw this beginning, and based on this beginning, he decides to stop it. And that's very important for us to take to heart, because sometimes we have plans, and we want to begin down a course, and it all gets stopped, and what do we do? We get frustrated. We get frustrated. But that's the time to be thanking God, to thanking God, because he sees what's going to happen that we can't see, and he stops it. Now, the difference is that they weren't thanking God. They were just frustrated and confused. And so what does he say in verses 7 through 9? He says, I'm going to go and confuse them. And so he uses the same words. He said, there's an immediacy to this, and it's very important. So he says, so God says, go to, let us go down. And when God says, go to, let us, then God has the last go to, let us, you know. (laughs) But he, he confused their language. And he took away from their minds the associations uh, between the words and the objects and the ideas and so forth and gave them different ones. And then they were scattered. That's what Mary said there in Luke 151. She said, he has showed 
strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. So what's the lesson for us to see in this account of the Tower of Babel? First, the account of the Tower of Babel describes the world we live in. This is our world. And there is in this world a course to unite men under the achievements of man, under the celebration of what man does without God. And what is the end of this world? Exactly what it was here for these people. It will be frustration, confusion, and lives of no worth. Wasted effort of lives on earth. Wasted effort. Just like the little poem goes, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Well, they weren't doing anything for Christ. They weren't doing anything for the Lord Jesus Christ. They weren't doing anything from God. And so all worthless. And as a matter of fact, you can say that if you want a description of those in hell today, you would say they are, number one, frustrated. Frustrated of not being able to have been successful to rise in their life of independence from God. And then you would say that there's confusion, confusion, confusion in hell because they don't know how they ended up there. It's just so unclear to them. Everything is just confusion. And then as they look back over their lives, it's a life of no value. Now, it's an absolute unnecessary catastrophe. It's an unnecessary disaster for anyone to end in hell. Because when we go and we step back from this passage we could say, what was the center of their gravity? In other words, where were they gravitating toward? What was their focus? Their center of gravity was outward. It was all about what they achieved, their achievements of man. That was the center of their gravity. And in contrast to Noah, and you'd say, what was the center of Noah's gravity? The center of Noah's gravity was inward, God in him. And so the center of his gravity was a worship of God. The center of his gravity was a life of sacrifice, a life of obedience unto God. Now, this is setting the stage as we're going to come right now into chapter 12 here with the calling of Abraham. And what we're going to find with Abraham is that now that we've set the stage for where the world was, Abraham was completely different. Abraham had a completely different direction from the world. And that's the reason why we have to look at chapter 11 to understand why Abraham dwelt in tents. Because whereas in chapter 11, the idea is permanency, these people want permanency on earth, a strong tower that's unmovable, that reaches up and so forth. So Abraham, by contrast, said, I want nothing to do with it. I'll have nothing to do with that direction, nothing to do with that philosophy of life. I want God. And if this world has evicted God, then I want out of this world. And I want to go where God is. And so that's the backdrop, and that's why it's so important that we see this. It's not so hard for us to see the direction of Genesis 11, because that's the world we live in. But it's very important as we see that because... We don't also want to be like Abraham, and we want to say we want nothing to do with this world. We don't want to love this world. We don't want to be a part of this world. So there's nothing to do with it. We want God. And so, therefore, we want to be followers of Abraham. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much 
for being the God of Abraham. And thank you, Lord, that even though we're in the world, you've not taken us out of the world, but you've called us to yourself in the world and asked us to stand and given us the strength to stand against this world and its direction. And so help us, Lord, to have our understanding that is molded by you, by your word, by the scriptures, so that we can say no to our own darkened understanding and lean not to that, but to trust in you with all of our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Another great day of Bible teaching here on Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Now, as we've been mentioning all week long, the Summer Blitz Jewish Evangelism Campaign is continuing throughout the U.S. and Canada in 14 major Jewish cities as we sent out 110 Israel Restoration Ministries missionaries into Jewish cities with gospel information, Tom Cantor's testimony on DVD, as well as a combination book of his written personal testimony, frequently asked questions by Jewish people, and prophecy and fulfillments of the Jewish Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. We take these materials with these 110 missionaries, and we go to 700,000 doors in Jewish communities where Jewish people live and need the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Tom Cantor is a Jewish born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and as the president and founder of Israel Restoration Ministries, wants to reach these Jewish people through this Summer Blitz Jewish Evangelism Outreach Campaign. Will you support the gospel going to the Jew first, as commanded in Romans 16? For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first. And you can be a part of going to the Jew first with the Summer Blitz Jewish Evangelism Campaign. Let's reach lost Jewish people before it's too late for them. 800 247 3051 or for more information, go to israelrestoration.org.